Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. I'm Michelle Murphy, Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know by now, we have three different types of podcasts. Our seminar series is a look back at some of our conference and seminar presentations where you can hear from people like Santina Bertolesi, Lena Carr and Tony Fahey. Our 10-minute lesson series where we give a brief overview of a policy topic. This is meant to be a useful introduction to an area that we hope our listeners will find helpful. And our interview series where we have a chat with experts on a range of policy areas. This is one of those. Today, I'm joined by Claire O'Connor, Energy Policy Officers with Friends of the Earth, to talk about climate change, climate action, and protecting the vulnerable. Claire, you are very welcome to our podcast series. Thanks so much for having me on today, Michelle. So first off, tell me a bit about Friends of the Earth and the work that you do. So Friends of the Earth are an environmental NGO. And what we do is we campaign and we build movement power to bring about system change that's going to tackle um, catastrophic climate change. And we want to see a just world where people and nature can thrive. And we're part of a, a bigger, broader international Friends of the Earth movement who have been in operation for over 50 years now at this point. Um, and we really believe in uh, a societal transformation that lives within our ecological limits of the planet and and also that's uh, just and where where people and nature can thrive as well and as well as that we we have um groups of one future networks all across all across the country that we support in their local campaigning and advocacy work uh, at a at a local a local level to support faster and fairer climate action we kind of have three main areas that we look at so there's the faster and fairer climate action and then we have no new gas, which is to campaign against new gas infrastructure. And then we have our energy poverty um, aspect as well, which I know we're going to talk about in a little while. So that's what we do. And my, my role is in energy policy. So I predominantly look at decarbonization of home heating. Um, so looking at getting fossil fuels out of our homes. I also look at the retrofitting and insulation side of, of things as well. And then I do, again, look at the, the social justice dimensions of the energy transition transition so look, making sure really that the energy transition that is going to happen prioritizes the people who are the furthest behind first and to make sure that we don't leave anyone out of this big transformation because there's so many benefits that can come from climate action and it's so important that everyone in society can feel those benefits really and it's that that we target those more vulnerable people first as we, as we take climate action and I know we're going to talk about that, that a bit later. We are. And before we get to that and before we get to the, I suppose, the energy poverty aspect, um, given that COP27 has just started and Anthetic is addressing world leaders in Sharm El Sheikh today, and given your work on faster and fairer climate action, what are the kind of outcomes that Friends of the Earth would like to see from COP27? Yeah, so it's it's a big COP and it's it's an important one because we're now really seeing the impacts of climate change. Like they're very real and they're happening right now. You know, we've seen record flooding in Pakistan. We're seeing millions of people hungry in Africa. So the thing that we want people to know is that the impacts are being felt now. And we as wealthier countries and as countries who have historically contributed more towards climate change, we now have to support those countries who've done the least to cause climate change, but are now actually feeling the impacts of it most acutely. 
So one thing that we really want to see is increased climate finance, and that's the, the finance that does support these type of countries, these developing countries who who kind of were, were, were struggling in other ways anyway. And now with climate action on top of that, it's actually even more of a struggle for them to, to, to develop. And uh, and it, it's, again, the, the people who are most vulnerable in those countries who are, are feeling it the hardest. So we want to see more climate finance to support these countries. And we also want to see specifically this loss and damage facility that helps these countries deal with the losses that they're facing right now and that they will continue to face. Because unfortunately we have locked in a certain level of climate change at this point. Um, and they're gonna be dealing with the impacts of that now for, for years to come. And it's really important that there's a dedicated financial facility to, to support them to deal with that. Uh, and additionally, we also want to see a, a plan for the phase out of fossil fuels. You know, we've, we've all agreed to the Paris Agreement, which aims to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees. But the Paris Agreement actually doesn't mention the root cause of climate change, which is the burning of fossil fuels. So we really need to see more explicit acknowledgement that we need to phase out fossil fuels, basically, if we are going to keep 1.5 alive, as they're now saying. So we, we want to see uh, a global fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. And we think that Ireland should really be the ones championing this global treaty to stop, to, it, to really immediately halt fossil fuel production if we are going to keep within the, the 1.5, because even at 1.5, we're already seeing the impacts. And it's kind of, it's scary to think what will happen if, if it does go higher than that. And if we look at countries' pledges at the moment, it does look like we're, we're locking ourselves into two, if not three degrees uh, of warming. Yes, I suppose, even if you look at the latest um, UNEPR, United Nations Environmental Programme report, even just the challenges in terms of the finance, financial aspect, but also the, nationally determined contributions I mean they all need to be increased but I suppose Ireland you know we do have a good track record in terms of uh the, the amount of work we did with the UN um in terms of bringing the sustainable development goals together um you know we've had the citizens assembly on on climate issues so I certainly think there's a space for us to kind of be at the fore of a, a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty I think Certainly, it's something you would hope that um, Antishuk and that Minister Ryan really push uh, this week in COP27. So moving now, Claire, from, I suppose, the global to the, I suppose, the national or the more local. But the issues, you know, the issues are similar because globally, it's those who are most vulnerable and have probably done the, who are, do the least to cause emissions are being most impacted. But we also know that here in Ireland, it's those who are most vulnerable, are most impacted by climate change. Um, and we know that they can also be most impacted by climate action if there isn't a specific policy focus on those cohorts to support them. So, for example, you know, in terms of retrofitting those on the lowest incomes, it's often beyond their reach. So, you know, there needs to be a policy focus on those and policy focus on people of, of energy poverty. So can you tell me a bit more about the work of Friends of the Earth in terms of climate action and protecting the vulnerable, I suppose, particularly around the work that Friends of the Earth have done in relation to energy poverty and climate action? Yeah, so yeah, you've made some really good points there. And that that's exactly it, because for so long, we were campaigning to get a climate law and to get these targets actually put into law. And now we have the targets. And the question is, how exactly are, are we going to do this? How are we going to have our targets in a decade? And are we going to do it in a way that really brings everyone along with us? 
Um, and yeah, it's it's all about really protecting the, the most vulnerable. And it's really this massive system transformation that has to happen. But it's also such an opportunity to bring people, to, to try and lift people out of poverty as we take this climate action to really make it really fair. Um, and our work now, so I, I'm looking at, like I said, I'm looking at the decarbonisation of heat. So really looking at people's homes and getting fossil fuels out of people's homes. And you brought up the, the government's retrofitting scheme there. Um, which they launched back in February there. And like you said, you know, we are doing some really good stuff and there's some really progressive um, policy instruments within the new retrofit scheme. So we do see free retrofitting for households, um, for homeowners really, who have uh, who are receiving social welfare payments, which is a really positive and quite a, a progressive step. But for, for everyone else, it's um, grants of up to 55%. Now that sounds really good, but when you actually think of what a retrofit costs it, it could be that it could be over sixty thousand euros so really you're still expecting people to fork out thirty thousand euro and like you said it, that's not accessible for the vast majority of irish households and it, it, it runs the risk of really these grants turning into a, a wealth transfer from from the government to wealthier households and wealthier households then get to feel the benefits of retrofitting and climate action they get the reduced bills they get improved air quality um, and I think what we really need to see from now on is targeting the more vulnerable cohorts who haven't really historically been able to access retrofitting and insulation. So, for example, renters aren't currently included in the national retrofit scheme. Uh, and the question is, if if a tenant or a landlord is to retrofit their home, what protections are there for tenants to make sure that they're not evicted from their homes while the retrofitting uh, is being carried out or that they're not going to be at risk of a rent hike so it all ties in really to the the housing crisis as well um and we know that we when we look at energy poverty and i suppose we look even at the the russian U invasion of ukraine at the moment we see that when these crises happen that it is people who are struggling in other ways anyway who are then kind of forced into a, a crisis so if we look at the energy crisis and we look at energy poverty i think back in april it was estimated that a third of irish households were in energy poverty which is which means they were spending more than 10 percent of their income on their energy costs every month but for a lot of cohorts this was the reality already if you look at the traveler community 80 percent of them were in energy poverty before this energy crisis and then you have the energy crisis and it sort of just like compounds structural inequalities that were there already. So I think when we're looking at this energy revolution, this transformation, all this retrofitting, we need to make sure that these these communities, these people are targeted first and that that they're not kind of the ones who are most vulnerable to these crises like the energy crisis and then like the climate crisis as well. That is that is very much coming down the line. So. What, what that's what we really need to campaign for now and it's that that those people who are furthest behind first are going to be targeted first in in all of this and that that, that it's those kind of cohorts who aren't locked in to say burning gas and burning oil for years to come while the wealthier get to get to to sit back and enjoy their solar panels and enjoy their really warm insulated homes and i suppose Claire, you make a really good point there which is something that i suppose we've always pointed out in terms of environmental subsidies and taxation particularly around retrofitting they tend to go to the households who have the disposable income to retrofit in the first place whereas you say for social welfare recipients who are homeowners and that you know the new the new um, strategy is really welcome in terms of that regard but then if you look at other households so renters or people who are not on a social welfare payment but are on a low income you know that 
30,000 euro is that you, you have to put up up front is really beyond the reach for a lot of low income households. You know, and potentially, even if there is a low cost loan element, will they take out the loan for that because they may have other demands on their resources? So, you know, and I think in terms of energy and climate impact, as you say, it's really important that there's a focus on on supporting different cohorts. You mentioned travelers and different households and because ultimately it does come down to income adequacy. And if you don't have enough income you know, to cope with we've rising energy costs at the moment, um, you know, to cope with rising food costs. It's it's an issue of poverty and people can label it as energy poverty or food poverty, depending on the percentage of your income. But ultimately, it's down to income adequacy. And just I, Friends of the Earth, you know, they organized for me anyway, which I thought was a, a really positive um a really good collaborative joint statement on energy poverty and energy pollution with civil society organizations during the summer and social justice and were part of this and could you tell me a bit more about this and you know why friends of the earth decided to reach out to civil society organizations in terms of looking at not just energy pollution and energy poverty but also to make some I suppose policy recommendations and look at solutions and and I suppose uh, present this to government. Yeah, so yeah, that was a really positive thing that's happened in the past few months. And I think um, what one of the things, what, one of the reasons why it was so positive is because we, we got to collaborate with such a diverse kind of range of stakeholders who we might not have collaborated with before. And we all got to come to an agreement that the solution to the energy crisis uh, and to some structural inequalities and the climate crisis is to get off fossil fuels as quickly as possible and to prioritize the most vulnerable. So we worked with, um, it was 42 civil society organizations overall who came together to demand immediate action to protect our most vulnerable households before winter and to protect them from these unprecedented energy bills that they're feeling. So we worked with anti-poverty organizations, we worked with yourselves, of course, uh, we worked with housing organizations and um, Age Action as well and other environmental organizations. And it was really positive, I think, for, for everyone across that social justice, climate, environmental kind of side of things to, to come together with a clear plan on how exactly the government can reduce uh, our reliance on fossil fuels and then insulate people from the, the worst impacts of the energy crisis uh, and, and those kind of the potential bad impact of, of climate action to make sure that it's a, it's a positive thing. So, um, and some, some of the things we called for were, again, to do with retrofitting so that we need to see, we need to see much more um, ramped up social housing retrofitting. The government are planning on retrofitting half a million homes by 2030, but only 35,000 of those are currently going to be social housing units retrofitted, which is only about like 40% of the government's overall housing stock. And to us, it would make most sense that they would prioritize retrofitting social housing tenants first above all else because firstly they're publicly owned buildings and secondly because it is tenants in social housing units who are more likely to be in energy poverty as well so that would be really a win-win in terms of fast climate action and bringing people out of energy poverty um we also wanted to see um free like more free smaller retrofitting measures so like attic and cavity wall insulation that there are currently really big grants available for but things that are kind of immediate and fast and what would actually have an impact on people's lives before winter and before energy bills really go up as well. Um, 
And another thing we wanted to see was the expansion of this warmer home scheme, which is that again, that free retrofitting scheme, which is it's only available at the moment to people who own their own homes and receive social welfare payment. And we really want to see that expanded to include tenants who are receiving housing assistance payment and are actually very likely to be in really inadequate housing as well. Uh, and when if you're living in inadequate housing, you could be paying energy bills and your, your, your heat is escaping incredibly quickly, you know, so it's actually people who are in that substandard housing actually have higher energy bills as well. So we need to make sure that these are the people who are in houses with low BERs who are really losing the energy that they're paying for. Um, and we need to see them ret retrofitted first. And then we also had calls for things like a windfall tax on energy suppliers as well. Um, who have profited out of the current energy crisis uh, and we want to see that redistributed into these kind of supports for most vulnerable households and then also to, to see increase in um, in social welfare payments as well so yeah it was a, it was a really positive thing um, and it was it was brilliant to get impact or to get input from organizations like the National Traveller MABS who have a really really clear vision of what exactly needs to be done to to bring traveler communities out of energy poverty and also bring them along in the in the in this sustainable energy revolution and to make sure they're prioritized because they've they've so much to gain from this as well and i, I suppose that's what i found really valuable about the collaboration was i suppose the amount of um commonality between i suppose the environmental and the civil society organizations but also just, just learning more about the positions of different organizations as well and you know that that you can come together with some pretty very strong and concrete policy proposals you know that that can be of use to government and i think going forward you know as we begin to implement implement you know, the policies that will help us read our national climate goals and the policies that will help us meet our carbon budget targets uh, and various other measures that we are, we are going to need more of this collaboration, both at a national level, but also I think at a, a regional and a local level as well to, to, to support communities themselves. Totally. And even when you look at climate action and you look at these kind of like blanket retrofitting approaches that they assume will will work for everyone that everyone will just apply for these grants we really need to go like the, the devil really is in the detail in this we really need to look at that granular level uh, and that more local level like you said see like what are the issues for people in these communities um and how can we target them much better do you know and we can't just expect people to apply for grants like you said you know if people if people are on low incomes, if they're suffering from income inadequacy, the last thing on their list is on their list of things to do is to go on the SEI website and to apply for these grants. And it can be quite a it's quite a bureaucratic process a lot of the times to get these grants. So we really need to see the SEI and the government going directly to communities and to the most vulnerable households and to really identify who are the vulnerable households. Because at the moment. We don't actually know who exactly is in energy poverty. Like we know that I think it's almost 50% of, of Irish households are in energy poverty at the moment, but the government don't have the data on exactly who they are or where they're living. And I think we have this new energy poverty action plan coming out soon. And I think a really big part of that needs to be identifying who the people are in energy poverty and how can we target them and how can we get to them and how can we I don't, set up outre outreach programs and these kind of community energy advisors that go directly to people and tell them what they're entitled to. Because I know that um, MABS and UCC did a piece of research 
at the start of this year and it said it was less than 10% of people who were eligible for the free retrofitting scheme had actually availed of it. So there's a huge piece and actually going to to people who are struggling, who might not have the capacity to actually go and, and figure out what exactly they're 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 eligible for. We, we need to go and tell them what's there for them and, and how exactly they can be helped. And I think the government really need to go to people and to hold their hands with this um, as well. I think that's a really, really big part of it too. Yes, I mean, I certainly think, uh, and we'd be, you know, we would be very supportive of that sort of approach that when it comes to something like this, for starters, probably, as you say, in the midst of a cost of living crisis, it's not going to be top of people's agenda. And for people who aren't on welfare, taking on more debt certainly won't be on top of their agenda. But even as you say, people who are entitled to the grant, even for someone who's well, who can be well versed in these kind of things, for a start, you're applying for it online and not everyone has the, you know, either the capacity or even just the laptop to go and do it. The second issue, as you say, is it can be quite bureaucratic and even knowing what what elements of the, you know, what elements you are or are not entitled to. Um, and, and I suppose what, what's often not taken into account in this is the actual impact on people's lives when the retrofitting takes place. So, for example, will they have to move out or not? And Well, if they don't have somewhere to move out to, then that's going to be problematic for them. And then I suppose the aftermath, the cleanup, simple things like does their home need to be repainted inside, various other measures, I think, as you mentioned, if government and the SAI and looked at really rolling out those community energy advices, then you'd know where these people are, how to target them. And you'd know the other issues that that come along with yeah, this. That's, that's exactly it, because we, we actually did a piece of research at the start of this year. And we found that one of the big barriers to this retrofitting scheme and to like reaching our targets was that issue of trust. You know, and it's 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 that thing of trusting the process because it's quite new and some of the technology is quite new. There's almost a feeling of stepping into the unknown with it and not really being sure what you're getting yourself in for. And I think it's important that there is, like you said, that kind of go to person in is it each local authority, each community who you can kind of ask these questions about, like, how does it work if, if I decide to go for a full deep retrofit? Do I have to move out of my home? What's available to me if I do have to do that? And I think um. It is interesting, the question around the, the deep retrofitting and doing it all at once as well. I know the Irish Green Building Council are calling for these um, renovation passports, basically, where you can kind of do do your whole deep retrofit one small bit at a time. So it's it's as, as undisruptive to your life as possible. And I think it's I, I think I think it's it's great that you brought that up, because I think it's one thing that government aren't always thinking about when they're doing policy design. It's like what what is someone's lived experience of this you know and like what what if they have like a child in the middle of their leaving cert or something like that like how you know like how, how are they going to support people who have all the other things in life going on how are they going to support them with really kind of benefiting from these these grants that they have available uh, to them as well and I think I think yeah I think just having the information available knowing who you can go to to ask these questions and having more clarity on like how much money can you save or can you be expected to save like having having someone available to to ask these questions so I think is a really really big big part of it and having those kind of yeah those peers around you as well you know if you see someone someone else who's gone through to be able to ask them like what was this like for you etc yeah but yeah I think that's a really big part of it and so I suppose this leads into my next question Claire because you've outlined obviously some clear priorities there but I suppose what are uh friend of the earth priorities 
in relation to energy poverty and I suppose climate action in general looking now I suppose it's it's November we're coming into the end of the year but we're also COP27 um it's you know a year since COP26 because it was delayed yet you could arguably say that we're moving backwards rather than forwards in terms of making progress so what are your priorities in relation to energy poverty and climate action I suppose even just looking ahead to 2023 yeah, so I suppose we do have our new climate action plan, hopefully coming out uh, end of November, start of December. Um, and I suppose I can kind of talk about like four different areas. So firstly, there's transport and we need to see us breaking our dependence on private cars and oil for mobility. So we need to see increased funding for cycling, walking and buses to school. We need to see much cheaper public transport. Um, we need to see more targeted electric vehicle support for rural Ireland, and we need to look at congestion charges in Dublin as well. We need to look at no new fossil fuel cars from 2026. And I think the thing is, we, we have these kind of targets and we have these targets in place, but it's really, it's so important now, this like planning and actual implementation phase of it now as well. Um, and then in terms of buildings, we want to see all social housing units retrofitted by 2030. Um, we want to see much better plans to get off gas and a clear end date as to when we're going to stop burning gas. Um, and we also need to see a rooftop revolution. So we really need to see increased solar and we need, we need solar to be accessible for every single household in the country because it has huge potential to bring down emissions and also to bring down energy bills. So I think what, what we're really focusing on next year is those kind of win-wins. So what's a win for climate action and for people's pockets as well, and to, to make sure that we're prioritizing people most in need as well. And then as well as that, we obviously need to see no new data centers as well. Um, we need to re-wet all of our bogs and we also need to look at more the, the kind of concept of a right to energy as well. So looking at like a basic energy guarantee for, for people who are in um, inefficient homes and on low incomes as well. And I think I don't think anyone would would argue with any of those, Claire. I mean, increased funding for walking, cycling, public transport, um, you know, and getting people, you know, out of their cars and into public transport, I think is going to be key. Um, and it does, it's not only the the environmental benefits is that the overall health benefits that goes with that as well. Um, and I think yeah, also yeah. in terms of retrofitting and the solar issue, I think is really important because I know Minister Foley made an announcement in the budget that, you know, schools, there will be funding for schools, solar panels will be attached to schools. But I think unless we put in the, you know, the funding to improve our energy infrastructure so that people and there should be solar panels in every community building, farm building and communities, households, farmers, businesses, uh, schools, um, you know, public services can connect into the grid, reduce their bills, but also sell their excess energy into the grid. But I suppose we don't have the capacity necessarily for that at the moment. So I think, you know, as you say, that and the investment in that, I think, will be key as well. So that people can see the tangible benefits and changes, you know, that, that this sort of, and these are all part of, part of a bigger systemic change, but the people can see the benefits and they see the benefits, I suppose, in the short to medium term rather than having to wait to the longer term. And I think, you know, that that I think will be crucial. And I suppose winning the hearts and minds element of this. 
Yeah, completely. Because if, if people aren't seeing climate action as something that's accessible to them, and if they don't see it as something that's equitable and fair and making their lives better, it's going to be very hard to bring people along. And I think the way the government need to bring people along, if they're actually being real and realistic about having their emissions by 2030, is to look at how can we make people's lives better as we're doing this? And how can we make sure that we lift people out of poverty and prioritize the most vulnerable? Because I think Irish people have such an inherent sense of fairness and like what's fair and what's equitable. And I think we can see now that's, that some parts of climate action aren't like that. And I think from, from now on, we really need to make sure that, that it is fair and that it's prioritizing the, the, those win-wins really. Like you said, the health benefits, the air quality benefits, um, yeah, there's there, there's a lot to be gained from from climate action. There really is, and I think we I think the government really need to start pushing that in in their communications and in the the policy options they choose now in this year's climate action plan. And on that positive note, Claire, in terms of emphasising that you know the positives that we can get out of this. I've, first of all, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and we as Social Justice Ireland hope that all our listeners have enjoyed this podcast. And as always, if you have any ideas or suggestions for our podcast, please let us know by emailing us at secretary at socialjustice.ie. And until next time, stay safe.